You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again in the sixth hour. In the ninth, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, Each one of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, for each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Colin? You got me? Yeah, I guess you do. Well, um, good morning. Oh, wow. Got a woo. That's good. Oh, that's Micah. Yeah. Appreciate that, Micah. Love your hair, by the way. Well, uh, let me add my greeting to you um, and say welcome to the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. As you no doubt know, I am not Eric, and so I am not the pastor. And as I told the first service, I look out and I see a few faces that I don't recognize. And so I want to make sure that I say that I am not the pastor. And so if you don't like what you hear, that's perfectly fine. I will not be offended by that. You can tell me that you didn't like it, and I won't be bothered by that one bit. Um, But I would encourage you to come back next week um, when Eric will be back. Um, I think he'll be preaching again next week. Maybe not. Um, He's in Israel this week. But make sure you come back. And give us another shot when he is here. And I think if you do when he's here, you'll find that Eric is a a pastor and preacher um, par excellence. He is uh, an incredible gift to us, and we are thankful thankful to have him here. Now, unfortunately, to get to next week, you have to suffer through this week. Um, You could get up and leave right now because I'm here and Eric is not. It would be awkward a little bit. Uh, the floor is kind of loud in here, so we're all going to hear you, and we're going to watch you leave. Um, if you'll wait a few minutes, we'll all think you're going to the bathroom, and it's all good then. But if you leave right now, it's going to be really awkward for all of us, uh, most of all me, because I can see you better than anybody else can see you. So give it just a couple of minutes, and maybe you'll find it's worth uh, sticking around for. Now, in all candor, I do want to start by saying the same thing I said to you the last time I was here in the summer, which is that Steph and I are just... Um, overwhelmed to be here. We love you. We love this place. We love the elders that God has placed over us to lead our church and to guide us and to shepherd us. And we are really, really thankful to be here. We love Mike and we love Matt and we love Eric and and we love all you guys. And so we just are thrilled uh, to be here. Now, this morning, we're going to continue the series that we've been going through the entire semester called Jesus Stories. And I'll warn you that In the first service, I was constrained by time, right? We have a second service, so I had to to shut up at some point um, because we had a second service that was starting. 
Uh, I'm not constrained by time in this service, so um, we'll be out of here by 12:30 at the latest, I would say. But but I have at least three hours of material here in front of me that we could we could go through if if we had to. Now, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that Eric has sort of reiterated some principles about parables every week before we before we dive in, and I want to reiterate a couple of those also. Um, He's told us, Eric has told us many times during this series that the parables are designed to reveal truth to some and to conceal it from others. And that is certainly true. I, I think of the parables as a sort of secret handshake between Jesus and those who would desire to follow him. In these parables, Jesus takes cultural concepts that would have been in, in, intimately familiar to his audience and he uses those concepts, those stories, to teach kingdom truths. Truths about himself, truths about the Father, or truths about the kingdom more broadly. Now, a parable is typically a story that is designed either to teach one or two principles or to answer a question. Now, it is important that when we approach a parable that we don't approach it like um, an epistle. It's not a Galatians. It's not a Hebrews. We start pulling back the onion and peeling it back too much, and pretty quickly we'll be down into a heretical road if we do that with a parable. That's not what they were designed to do. We're not looking at every character and every element and just picking it completely apart. That's not the goal of, of the parable. Now, I have heard it said, and I think this is true, that a parable is like a pitcher. It's like a pitcher of water. And Jesus has poured the meaning into this pitcher, and it's our job to, as faithfully as we can, to pour it back out. And that's what we're going to attempt to do with the parable of the laborers this morning. Now, obviously, there are challenges for us to doing this. The challenges come from the fact that we are not familiar with Jesus' culture. We are not familiar with what things were like in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. We just don't have the same frame of reference. And in some of the parables, that's incredibly important. You might remember the parable of the prodigal son, where the behavior of a Jewish father was, was really important to understanding the lavish grace of, of God. But this morning's parable is a little bit different. There aren't that many cultural concepts that are in, important to understanding it. It is a little bit simpler, and it hits a little closer to home for those of us who are parents. Um, or maybe you just remember what it was like to be a kid. But this parable reminds us of a, a refrain that I hear in my house all the time. My kids are already rolling their eyes. You've heard this refrain too. Now, this is not an actual story. This is made up. But if one of my kids happened to be digging through our 11-year-old couches and found a 6-year-old Skittle a nice red Skittle with a little bit of lint, a little bit of dirt, what are they going to do with it? They're going to pop it in their mouth. Right? Right, Isabella? Isn't that what you would do? See? And what are the other kids going to say? It's not fair. She got a Skittle and we didn't. Right? Or the other example that I have is on Wednesday night, Halloween night, we had some friends at our house. And my wife, this is true was throwing away the, the Halloween candy from the year before. So the Halloween candy from 364 days ago went into the trash that night as we were eating pizza, and they were preparing to go out and do some trick-or-treating. And one of the kids, Annabelle, not one of my kids, by the way, um, was throwing her pizza crust away. And when she opened the lid to the, to the trash, what did she see? Well, to you and I, she saw trash. But to her, she saw like a treasure trove of candy, right, of Tootsie Rolls and suckers and all kinds of other things. And what did she do? Well, there were no parents around. Parents weren't supervising, you know. And so she took one out, and she ate it. And what do all the other kids think? That's not fair. She got trash candy. The other five of us want trash candy too. I hear this at my house all of the time. Now, in fairness, we have probably created this animal to some degree at our house because one of the disadvantages, maybe it's an advantage, of being a lawyer's kid is 
they're a little more tuned into justice maybe than other kids are. You know, I care about it quite a bit. We talk about it sometimes, about what is right and what is wrong, but what is fair in our system. And we used to have family court. Family court died a death, unfortunately, maybe. Uh, but used to, my kids had the opportunity to, to stand in front of mom who was in at like a podium and plead their case and explain why they should get grace or why the other kids should get justice. Um, family court is gone, much to my, I think, my chagrin. But you've heard this at your house too, right? It's not fair. It's not fair. And as a matter of fact, you've probably thought it or you've said it. But the difference is that as, as adults, we're a little more subtle about this, right? We're a little more passive aggressive about it. We don't just say, that's not fair. We say, she got that promotion that I was entitled to, that I should have gotten. Or I am suffering A, B, or C way, and he has not had to endure the same kind of suffering as me. Now, this phrase that this is not fair or life is not fair is what you hear from dad if, if you say this is not fair. It's without a doubt, it's my kryptonite. I can't stand it unless, unless I'm the one saying it, right? Because sometimes dad thinks he's been aggrieved too. The difference is dad has an actual grievance. My grievances are always righteous. They're always just, and I am always pleading a righteous case. Now, in my real life, I'm a lawyer. And so many of the folks who come into my office or call my phone have some grievance about the way they have been treated, some unfairness that they believe has been worked against them. And in many instances, that is true. And one of the things that I am trying to do in my practice most of the time is ensure a just result for my client. Make sure that they get at least what they are entitled to, at least what is fair in a particular instance. Or if justice can't be achieved, which it sometimes cannot, I want to make sure whatever injustice exists works to my client's benefit. Now, justice in the abstract is all about getting our just desserts. It's about getting what we deserve. And in our day, there is quite a bit of talk about, about this. Some folks in my business are exploring our justice system and discovering as if they didn't know that there are biases that are built into this system, either intentionally or unintentionally, based on race or socioeconomic status or on something else. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail too far but because it's not what the parable is primarily about. But suffice it to say, justice is not done in all corners of our community. There is still injustice that exists, and we are right to want to change that. My kids are right to want to change the significant injustices that happen to them at our house. But fairness and justice, and perhaps more importantly, grace, are all part of this morning's parable, the parable of the laborers. Now, I said a while ago, about talked about the importance of context. And for this particular parable, the context comes in Matthew 19. Mike read Matthew 20, and I'll tell you that the, the break between 19 and 20 is really, is really a, a horrible break. There shouldn't be a break between 19 and 20. There's no logical reason to break the chapters there, uh, those chapter divisions, in case you're wondering or not inspired. So I can certainly criticize them up here, and I'm going to. But So the end of chapter 19 is where the context actually comes from. And I think we have to talk about that context so we can make sure we understand the question that is being asked. And the question that Jesus is answering when we get down to Matthew 20. Now, at the end of Matthew 19, what is happening is the rich young man has approached Jesus. And what is his question? His question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him is what? Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And what does the, the rich young man do? He goes away sorrowful because he cannot imagine parting with his possessions. Now, in verse 23, we'll pick up their reading. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? 
But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit also on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus here is laying out the context for what is going to come in Matthew 20. And he says something that was completely backwards to these first century Jewish guys. That is that it's difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. This totally befuddles them when the scripture says they were greatly astonished at Jesus' words. This was counter to everything they thought they knew about God and about how he works. And Jesus tells them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But Peter, oh Peter, Peter's always got questions. And Peter has a habit of putting his foot in his mouth. And in this instance, we're sort of indebted to Peter for doing so because we get this parable out of his question. But some of you have no way to relate to Peter. I'm, I'm married to somebody like this who never says the wrong thing at the wrong time. She never puts her foot in her mouth. She never wishes she could crawl under a large piece of furniture and hide because of something that she just said. Now, me, in stark contrast, this happens at least once a day, right? Where I really wish, oh, those words are gone. If I could just pull them back, but it turns out that you can't, you can't do that. And Peter is like that. Peter is the guy, so you've got the new mom who just, who just had her baby a few weeks ago. And Peter is the guy who asks her, hey, when, when, are, you, when are you due? When are you going to have your baby? That's, that's Peter. That's me. I identify so clearly with him in this respect for sure. Now, in hearing Jesus' discussion with this rich young man about the dangers of wealth, Peter sees an opportunity to get a question answered that these guys have been asking. They've been talking to Jesus about how are we going to be rewarded for everything we've given up. So he says, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I imagine Peter doing this because the rich young man has just come and decided, I've got too much possession. I've got too much wealth. I cannot leave all of this and follow Jesus. And Peter knows that he has done that, right? He and the, the 12 have left everything to come and follow, to follow Jesus. And so Peter, recognizing this contrast, says, well, Jesus, tell us what are we going to get? And so that is the question that Jesus is jumping into when he gets to Matthew chapter 20. And he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 20. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now this, the kingdom of heaven is like, is a frequent refrain that we hear many times in the Gospels. Right? We've already talked about several of these kingdom parables over the course of the last couple of months. We've heard the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. There are lots of these kinds of parables. And Jesus is telling them, I'm about to give you some instruction about what the kingdom is like. And he says, it's like this, a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So this master is in the market, and he is looking for laborers. This is a typical thing that the disciples would have been aware of. The master has a crop on the ground. He's got grapes or whatever it is in his vineyard that are ready to be picked. And his normal household servants, his normal household employees, are not, not enough to accomplish this task. So he goes to the market to hire to hire laborers. 
And there are several groups of laborers he's going to hire, but the first group is recorded in verse 2, and it says, After agreeing with the laborers, this first group, for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, it's probably about 6 o'clock in the morning when this takes place. The typical work day for them would have been from 6A to 6P, sun up to sundown. And so these folks are going to have a full day of work ahead of them. But they're different than the other workers that are going to be hired later. They have an agreement with the master. They have a binding agreement. They have an enforceable contract with the master. And this was different than all the other laborers that the master is going to hire. Now, the day laborer, according to most commentators that I read, did not enjoy any kind of, any kind of status at all in this society. They were considered lower than the household servants, and they were treated about like you would expect that they would have been treated. They were used to keep the long-term liabilities of the family low. They could go and hire them for a day and send them back on their way, and they were not required to take care of them throughout the year when their labor wasn't as important. This day labor existence was one of desperation, and we'll see that in, in some of their discussion later on. But this first group of workers, they make an agreement with the master, and they launch off to work. And then in verse 3, we get to another set of workers. In verse 3, it says, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, for whatever reason, and we don't know, the Scripture doesn't record it, although I think we can infer uh, some potential reasons. Um, the master needs more workers. He goes back to the, to the market to find more laborers. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning now. So about three hours of the work day is gone. And he finds some more, some more laborers. Now, he tells them, go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. These guys don't have the same agreement with the master that the first set of workers has. They have no agreement other than that the master won't take advantage of them. There is some precedent in Leviticus for this arrangement, but they don't have an explicit agreement that says we're going to pay you a denarius a day. There is no writing between them and the master. Now, why is there no agreement between these 9 a.m. workers and the master. I think the deeply theological reason why there is no agreement between the master and these new workers is because the rest of the parable would be lame if they had an agreement with the master. Jesus' punchline is, um, comes at the very end of this parable. And if we already knew that these guys had an agreement or we knew exactly what they were going to get paid, the rest of the parable would be basically unnecessary. So these guys are there kind of as filler to, to fill out the story that Jesus is trying to tell. And verse 5 says, so they went out. So the group of 9 o'clock workers went out. And the master going out again about the 6th hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. So at noon and at 3, he comes back and he hires another set of workers. Again, we don't have a ton of information about why. We actually have no information about why. But he goes back and he hires more workers. And then in verse 6 and verse 7, And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now at the eleventh hour, the master makes one last trip to the market and hires one last set of workers. It's 5 o'clock. These guys are going to work one hour at the most. And I think the fact that he's still hiring workers at the 11th hour tells us something about why he has hired them. This is a desperate existence. And you can hear this in their answer to his question of, why do you stand here idle all day? They say, because no one has hired us. We know these cats are desperate. How do we know? Because it's 5 o'clock, and they're still sitting in the market waiting for the possibility of day labor. 
just the chance that I might get to go and work for an hour or two and make a little bit of money. I don't think we have a good handle on just how desperate these guys would have been. Without this money, the chances of being able to feed themselves and feed their family um, was nearly zero. I want to be careful of doing what I told you a while ago that we shouldn't do, which is read too much into this. But these guys have been sitting here all day. They have not had work all day. Presumably lots of other vineyard owners, lots of other masters have walked through who needed labor. And these guys didn't get hired. I surmise from that that these guys have some characteristic that makes them less than desirable employees. There's something about them that has left them passed over by all of the other folks who have come through looking for workers. Now, what do we know about this master at this point? We're about halfway through this parable. What do we know about him? We know he's in charge. We know he is in charge. He's doing all the hiring. He's making all the decisions about who's going to go work in the vineyard. We know that he cares. We know he cares because in Jesus' day, it would not have been uncommon for a master like this to send a hired servant to go and find more day laborers, but not this master. This master goes into the market himself, and he's looking around for laborers. He's looking around for folks to come and work in his vineyard. The third thing I think we know about the master at this point is that the reality is this master doesn't need these workers. These 11th hour workers are going to provide exactly zero benefit to the master. Very, very little benefit is going to accrue to him from hiring folks to go and work for one hour. But he is hiring them. He is going back into this market and bringing these folks out because they need him. He doesn't need them, but he knows that they need him. They need the wage. They need the work. They need the food. So this master is generous. Now, in verse 8, things take a turn. And Jesus starts describing, describing this, the scene of all of these folks getting paid. And he says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now this, in my mind, is vintage Jesus. Right? He is about to make a point, and he is drawing these guys in before he does it. The trap has been laid, the bait has been brought into their mouths, and he's just sort of slowly reeling them in. He's describing the way that they get paid, but he's doing it by describing the last workers getting paid first, and the first workers are going to get paid last. And in verse 9, the, the 11th hour workers come. And they receive a denarius. Now Jesus has completely set the trap. He's completely set the trap. They get a full day's wage for one hour of work. It's a completely shocking turn of events. And perhaps the folks who are shocked the most are the 6 a.m. workers who are waiting in line to get their wage. And they're sitting there and they're waiting. And in verse 10, the scripture records that they thought they would receive more. They thought they would receive more. So they've been working six, six, since 6 a.m. They've gotten off of work at 6 p.m. And now they're waiting for their wage. They thought for sure that they were going to get more than they had agreed to. What did they expect? I don't know. If I'm them, I expect... 12 times what these guys got, right? I work 12 times as much. Fairness would seem to suggest I should get 12 times as much as the Johnny-come-latelys who got to work at 5 and left at 6. At this point, I suspect for the 6 a.m. workers, this is less about receiving the denarius that they agreed to than it is about receiving something that is comparable to what the 5 p.m. workers got. It's not about getting what they agreed to. It's about getting what they think is fair in light of what the others have received. Now, what do they do? 
They're thrilled to get their denarius. No, no. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that they grumble against the master. And they say, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and of the scorching heat. So they're telling us why they are upset. Number one, you have made them equal to us. It's not so much that I'm upset about my denarius. I'm upset that they are getting a denarius also. I'm upset that they are being treated the same way that I am being treated. Here's the problem that I see, or one of the problems that I see in these workers. They have set themselves up now as the standard. Rather than rightly recognizing that they were all recipients of the master's favor because they were chosen to come and work, they have decided that their work is the standard by which all other work should be judged. The passage isn't clear, but we can fairly infer that not every worker in the market had a gig for the day. These guys are not angry because they got to work or because they got a denarius. They're angry because the other guys did too. They're angry because workers kept showing up and these workers who showed up later than them got the same as them. You would think they would be happy that these workers were showing up, right? Workers are showing up to help carry the load. But also, it's an act of grace that these guys are getting to come into the vineyard and work at all. So seeing someone else be the recipient of the master's grace should not have been as big of a problem as it turned out to be. And in verse 13, the master is speaking now. And he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now here at the end, the bait is firmly in their mouth, and Jesus is setting the hook. He reminds the disciples of three different things, I think, in, in this very short little exchange about, about himself. Number one, he is just. He says, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? In other words, we have made an agreement. I have lived up to my end of the agreement, and so have you. In legal terms, we would say, both have gotten the benefit of their bargain. That's what you want in a contract, is the benefit of your bargain. And both the master and the worker have gotten that. I have given you your just desserts. The second thing he illustrates is his sovereignty. He says, I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Notice what the master doesn't do. The master makes no effort. He has no interest in trying to justify the decision that he has made. He says, I have chosen to do this. He doesn't say, they accomplished as much in one hour as you did in 12 and try to justify the decision that he's made to pay them a full denarius. He doesn't do that at all. He says, it's my money and I will do with it what I wish. Now finally here, the master is illustrating his lavish generosity. He is choosing to give them far more than they are entitled to simply because he can. Now, I want to pull out of three or four truths about this passage. And before I do that, I want to say a couple of things about what I think the passage is not about. This is not some statement by Jesus endorsing the, the employment and business practices of the master. Um, as I heard someone say recently, we were talking about this passage, and they said, if this parable is about business, then God is a terrible businessman, right? This, this approach to employees, this approach to business would not work long term. Paying people for 12 hours when they worked one is not a recipe for success in most instances. The second thing this parable is not about, I don't think, is it's not about Israel. There is an inclination to see this as being about Israel because there's a vineyard involved and Israel is very often seen or illustrated as a vineyard in the scripture. I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating here. I might just be too simple to see it, but I don't think that's what he's communicating. And we can exchange emails about 
um, about that if you would like. I'm happy to explain to you why I don't think that's the case. Now, finally, I, I don't think this parable is explicitly about salvation. I think there are principles about God in this parable that are illustrated that do have to do with salvation, but that's not primarily what this is about. And I think that because Peter, the question he is asking that Jesus is trying to answer is all about reward. Reward for work done in the vineyard. Reward for work done in the kingdom. And Jesus is answering that question with this parable. It would make no sense to answer a question about kingdom rewards with an answer about entry into the kingdom. The two things just wouldn't, would not um, go together very well. Also, all of the workers here have been chosen for work. So there's no basis for seeing some of them as inside the kingdom and others as outside the kingdom. Okay, so I don't think this is explicitly about salvation. Now, we encourage disagreement here. Um, and if you have disagreements, you, you should send them to eric at Bethelbible.com. <laughs> and um, you can do that, and Eric will write you back. And he will probably tell you that this is not in the list of top 100 things that Mazingo has wrong with him. And so I'm not going to deal with it very much. Um, he will probably buy you coffee and explain to you all the ways that I was wrong about various other things in this sermon. And that is perfectly fine. But direct your emails to him. Now, if the parable is not those things, then what the heck is the parable actually about? The big idea that I think Jesus is communicating here is that God is the sovereign dispenser of grace. God is the sovereign dispenser of grace. And with that big idea in mind, I want to make three real quick points about that. I am not the arbiter of God's grace. Now, in my business, we are occasionally dealing with individuals called arbitrators. And maybe some of you have participated in an arbitration before. If you're a sports fan, you have heard of an arbitrator because every sport has an arbitrator that deals with different issues. By way of example, as I understand the current state of things, Ezekiel Elliott is going to play today for the Cowboys. For those of you who don't know, he's the Cowboys tailback. I will take a pass on the question of whether he should or should not play, but he is going to play. He was suspended by the NFL, and his punishment was originally reviewed by an arbitrator. Now, what is an arbitrator? Well, an arbitrator is essentially a private judge. Has a lot of the same powers of a judge. But they aren't a real judge. Now, you can probably see where I am going with this, but I fear that many times we put ourselves in this role. We want to be the one deciding who gets justice and who gets grace, and in what measure. We want to have the final word on who gets cancer, and who gets health, and who, get what, who gets wealth. Now, not surprisingly, I have not seen a situation where I thought the horrible illness or the horrible calamity that has befallen my family here or there was justified. And I don't recall a situation where I thought I had too much money. It turns out that if I were in charge, I'd be happy 100% of the time. I'd be rich 100% of the time. And I would be healthy 100% of the time. And so would those closest to me. And if I were the arbitrator handing out grace and justice, that's what you could expect. You could expect lots of grace for me. And when you wrong me, lots of justice for you. Right? We all love grace when it applies to us, and we all love justice when it applies to the one who has, who has wronged us. But in this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, there is no need for an arbitrator. There is a righteous judge who makes the judgments and dispenses the grace, and he does not need my input or your input. He has not put me in charge of dispensing his grace, much to my chagrin. He has not created a committee to do that for him. Like the vineyard owner in the parable, he is in complete authority over his sphere of influence. The difference is that the vineyard owner is in complete authority over a really small area, whereas God maintains complete authority over the entirety of all of creation. 
I'm not the arbiter of this grace because it's not my grace to give. It's not my grace to give. The master is very clear when he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The master is emphatic that the money that he is giving out belongs to him, and he can do with it as he chooses. And the analogy to God is obvious. The second point I want to make is that in the kingdom there is no injustice. Now, that does not mean we all get the same thing. It doesn't mean we all get the same thing. We'd all love to be, and he's gone because he knows I'm about to say this, we'd all love to be devastatingly handsome and have perfect hair like Matt McGill and be able to transition smoothly from playing Jesus music this morning to playing a sociopathic dentist who enjoys inflicting pain at 2.30 this afternoon in Little Shop of Horrors. But that's not the way this works. We do not all get the same thing, and in this life, we do not all end up in the same place. Whether it's professionally or socioeconomically, we don't all get to the same place. But none of us gets from God less than what we are entitled to. None of us gets from him less than what we are entitled to. Sometimes we get justice. Sometimes we get grace. But we never get injustice. Now, we typically complain about injustice in two different ways, I think. Either someone gets something that they didn't deserve, or I'm enduring something that I shouldn't have to endure, that I don't deserve. And we see both of these in the first workers. They say, you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You have made them equal to us. In other words, you have given them something that they did not deserve. You gave them something that they were not entitled to. For us, this is the promotion we didn't get or the promotion that she did get. Um, that's how this works out for us as adults. It's not about candy. It's about other things. I don't have the family that I deserve, or I don't have the job that I deserve, or the bank account that I deserve, or the spouse that I deserve. Whatever it is, we compare ourselves to our neighbor, and we discover that somehow they are better off than us. And because they're better off than us, something must be amiss. Something has to be wrong. That great theologian, Teddy Roosevelt, once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And how much joy have we robbed ourselves of by desiring to um, be sure that my neighbor was not getting something that I deserved? Now, I'm told that comparison is a problem for ch church folks. And I think church folks is who this parable is written to. We envy the gifts that our brothers and sisters have been given, or we are embittered by the influence they have obtained while we have toiled behind the scenes. I've done X and I've done Y and they've done nothing and somehow they have the pastor's ear or whatever it is that I want, some level of influence that I want, they have it and they don't deserve it. It's a bad look, but we all do it from time to time, of course. And I think Jesus would say, you do what you've been called to do and they will do what they have been called to do and I will sort it all out. It's not for you and I to sort out. Now, the first workers also say, we have borne the burden of the day and of the scorching heat. In other words, these Johnny-come-latelys have not suffered in the same way that we have. Now, when these guys took this assignment, they knew that suffering was part of the deal. The suffering they're now complaining about, the scorching heat, the burden of the day, are things they no doubt knew were in their future when they decided to go into the vineyard and work for the master. Working in the vineyard, which I'm sure they had done before, was necessarily going to involve dealing with the heat and was going to be a long day. Now, I'm not sure if you have heard this or not, but this life is hard, and sometimes it is unbearably so. But this, Christian, is what you signed up for. Perhaps you remember Eric's sermon series from a couple of years ago where we talked about 1 Peter. And he told us that the theme of 1 Peter is that God's will for your life is what? That you be saved, that you be sanctified, 
and that you suffer. Now, there's a reason why that's not out there on the front door printed right below the foundry sign. We don't put this on coffee mugs down there. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. But suffering, and sometimes horrific and tragic suffering, is part of this life. And this is what you signed up for. This is what you signed up for. In his short epistle, Peter uses, First Peter, he, Peter uses the Greek word for suffering 21 times to encourage his fellow Christians who he called the elect exiles of the dispersion. And what kind of trials were the, the Christians facing that, that Peter was writing to? They were suffering under Nero, and Nero loved to kill the Christians for sport. And one of the things he enjoyed doing was tarring them up and putting them in his garden and lighting them on fire and using them as a candle to light his garden at night. So they were acquainted with real suffering. It was not difficult to convince those Christians that suffering was part of this existence. And the New Testament is really consistent in the promise to us that that is part of what we have signed up for. And what, why should we expect anything different? You know, Eric says all the time, and I love this phraseology, we, we use it at our house sometimes, that Jesus, this Jesus is a king that cares. He's a brother who is proud, but he is also a champion that has died. And he demonstrated for us that the way of following him is the way of relinquishing power and laying down our life. And many times that includes suffering that may or may not be justified. Now, how do we end up in a place of believing that God has been unjust to us. There are, I think, two ways we end up there. One is we have no idea who we are and what justice would actually look like if God subjected us to it. We have no idea um, what justice would look like if he actually were to give us what we deserved. Now, we also have no sense of the temporariness of what we are dealing with right now. We have no sense of just how temporary what we are currently, currently experiencing is. Paul calls these afflictions that we face now our light and momentary afflictions. In the moment, the suffering seems unbearable, but with eternal perspective, which is hard to tap into, um, the suffering becomes more understandable. The eternal perspective is that the essence of the gospel is that God is making all of these things new. He is making everything right. He is setting everything right. He is redeeming all things to himself. Now, in her little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones uses this phrase over and over again, and I love it, that Jesus is making all of the sad things come untrue. That is the essence of the redemption the redemptive process that is taking place right now. C.S. Lewis describes it this way in The Great Divorce. He says, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Right? Eternal perspective, we don't um, necessarily have it. Now, the last point is that the kingdom is a complete reordering of this natural world. And Jesus uses this phrase two times. He kind of flips it. But in general, he says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He says that at the end of chapter 19. At the end of this parable, he says something similar, but he reverses the order. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, confession time. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but... I met with Fritz and Clint this week. They're preaching at downtown or at, at South and White House, respectively. And they seem to have a pretty good handle on it. So you could probably go listen to the podcast from South and, and White House and get an idea um, what they're talking about. But my view is that this is not intended literally. That it's not literal because Jesus is talking in hyperbole in verse 29 of chapter 19. When he's talking about everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother and how they're going to be rewarded a hundredfold. Obviously, you're not going to have a hundred fathers or a hundred mothers, so there is not, um, literality is not what Jesus is using here. He's not talking literally. 
But what I believe he's trying to communicate and what he is communicating is that in this kingdom, all of the ways that we categorize ourselves here, whether it be race or money or gender or whatever else it might be, do not matter. There is a radical reordering of society at the cross. At the cross, where justice and mercy are married up. The radical message of the cross is that the ground there is, it's cliche, but it's true, is completely level. That none of these things that we use to divide, to divide us are actually material. Now, some of us have been Christians for a long time. And the temptation for us is to see ourselves as 6 a.m. folks, as early morning workers. And I think the call of this passage to us is to recognize that we're actually an 11th hour worker. That all of us are completely reliant on the grace and the generosity of the master. We rely on that grace and generosity at the moment of salvation, and we're relying on it today for sustaining our salvation and for sustaining us. Now, maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've heard this message, this sort of topsy-turvy message of the kingdom that Jesus has created, where he dispenses grace on the sovereign, based on the sovereign will of the Father rather than based on the merit of his subjects. Now, I think for you, the call is to embrace this Jesus, to embrace these claims that he has made about himself and to believe. It's really that simple. We don't ask you to come down here and pray prayers or sign cards. We just ask you to believe, to trust that he is who he said he was, that he would do what he said he was going to do, and believe that he is who he said he was. Now, in a minute, I'm going to pray, and Mike is going to come up because we're going to take communion together. We're going to receive communion together. But let me pray, and then, Mike, it'll be all you. Lord, this morning we thank you for your generosity to us. We thank you for the fact that we can do nothing to make you love us more or love us less. We thank you for the, the radicalness of your grace. And Lord, my prayer is if there's somebody here who, who doesn't believe, Lord, simply that they would believe, that they would hear the claims that you have made about your son and they would believe. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, that we'll be reminded of the fact that we are just as reliant on that grace today as we were on the day that we first believed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.